I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So before we started the service today, some of us here in the temple were, were chit-chatting. And w some of the particulars of, of aging, of growing older, came up in the various aches and pains that one might feel, you know, arthritis and things like that. And uh, as has been par for the course in my life, there was this, oh, You'll see yourself in 20 years or so, right? And I've always heard something like that because I've always been, um, at least when I was younger, very precocious. So I tended to have a lot of older friends. So I'd be that 19, 20-year-old who had friends in their late 20s, all throughout their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s even. Uh, I remember being a 20-year-old drawn to spiritual communities of all types, and I'd go out there and make a lot of friends in these spiritual communities. And some of these people would be quite older, you know, old enough to be my grandparent. I remember one guy gave me the nickname Little Stevie, which I couldn't stand at 20. And, you know, I would tease him back and call him Papa Jack is what I called him. But I had a lot of interactions like that, you know, because I was this young guy mixing with a lot of older people, and they would tell me about all the, the trials and tribulations of, of being older. And now I'm in that stage of my life, which is why I think it's funny it came up this morning, where I'm starting to have those kind of moments myself. Now, for sure, aches and pains, that, that's something that's coming, more sensitive to coffee and things like that, that's all that. But socially, I'm starting to have those situations, which is a new thing for me. I'll give an example that's been coming up this summer because my wife and I have been spending time with uh, a family friend of hers. This very sweet 18-year-old uh, girl who just graduated high school. She's going to be starting university in, uh, I think, sometime in August. So we've been spending time with her before she leaves out of state where she's going to school. And there was one day in particular where my, my wife had been off with this family friend, this young girl, and she had told my wife in advance, oh, I, I want to bring a friend along. Is that okay? My wife says, sure. And it turns out that the friend is this boy that she's dating. And so now my wife is the third wheel right there next to these two lovebirds that are going to have to say goodbye in about a month because one's going to University of State, one's going somewhere in, in Los Angeles for trade school, things like that. Life is happening for these, these young people. So my wife lets me know, hey, uh, you know, we're going to be in Pasadena if you want to come by and not, you know, save me so I'm not a fourth, like third wheel anymore. So I say, sure. And we meet up together. And we decide we're going to take these two young people to our favorite tea house, somewhere where we like to go nearly every week. And we sit down, enjoy very high quality tea. We're friends with the owners. We have a good time. We have a little treat each, a little cookie, a little pastry, whatever. And so we take these young people there, this young girl and this young guy. And so we sit there and we, we get past the small talk and then I'm realizing, ooh, I don't have a lot of say to these kids. That's weird. I mean, I could try to chit-chat about, I don't know, what Marvel movies? What are, you, what are you guys into? And we start talking and I realize that I've reached this stage where I am 
twice the age and then a couple years extra to these kids. And in fact, they're talking about their graduation experiences and I'm realizing I graduated high school before they were born. And all of that is, is coming to me in waves as I'm trying to hang out and be cool with these kids. And uh, I'm listening to the words coming out of my mouth and I'm realizing I sound like an old guy right now. Oh, what was high school like? Oh, chemistry, huh? Oh, what are you doing? What are your plans for the summer? You looking forward to university? Like, I had nothing else to say to these guys. And, you know, meanwhile, they're being these cute little lovebirds, just touching here and there, all pressing in, little jokes between the two of them. They, even though we offered to buy them enough tea for the two of them, they're sharing a cup, because of course. And we were going to buy them a couple cookies, but they're sharing a cookie, nibble, nibble, right? And they're just having a blast. My wife and I are having gung-fu style tea, so we're doing multiple steeps of the same tea, noticing the changes of the taste over time. We're sharing with them. What do you guys think of this one? Oh, it's, it's good. We're realizing they have no vocabulary for the tea they're drinking because it's all just good. Everything's good. Because they're 18, and of course, everything's good. <laughs> and so my wife and I, afterwards, we're talking about this experience and just realizing like, wow, didn't they just seem so young? Wow, they're so young, right? And so we ended up having conversations after the fact of just reminiscing and, and being nostalgic about our, our own youths and our you know, teens and 20s. We're kind of in the stage that they're in, reflecting on, on various choices that we had made. You know? And we, like anyone, we have you know, a past where we look back and we see regrets, things we might have wanted to go a different way, this way or the other. And as we're discussing all of that, we usually, when we have these kind of talks, come to the same conclusion. Well, we can't have too many regrets because if life had gone differently, we might not have met, we might not have gotten married, we might not have this life that we have together. So, you know, we have, we have that sense of, of like, well, not, not too many regrets. But it's interesting to see how my wife and I have that conversation and amongst my peers, various friends of mine that are roughly around the same age, we're all having these conversations now because now we've got 20 plus years of, of adult life to unpack and examine. And we, we tend to go over the same stories, or at least a lot of my friends do. And I end up hearing different versions of the same stories over the course of years and seeing how the stories end up changing over time. Now, at the stage that we're at, what's really interesting to see is how often when we tell the stories, the narrative changes in a really significant way. When we talk about stuff that happened in our early 20s, when we talk about inter our interpersonal relationships, in the past we might have said, so-and-so was like this, it was so-and-so's fault, I can't believe it went that way, they were like that kind of person. Meanwhile, in their version of the story, they're squeaky clean. But now when they tell the story, after so many years of adulthood and so many years of therapy, well, you know, I was probably part of the problem too, if I really think about it. I was saying this and acting that way, and the, and the story now changes. On the one hand, the person who was definitely the bad guy is seen in a more sort of gray. You can get a sense of like, well, they were probably just figuring things out too, and like they were also young and saying this, but then I was also like that, and there's this sense of, of uh, regret and let's say remorse in, in the storytelling, which on its own is still stuff that needs to 
room to grow and improve because it, it really is just one half of an equation that I'll get into. But what I would say is that what has changed in this story that we've all been sharing with each other over the course of years of friendship, 15, 20 plus years of friendship, is that now we have matured to the point where we can start taking responsibility. And I think that that's an important part of maturity, is the sense that it's not just that the world is happening to you, you are also happening to the world, which is a, a big, big step in becoming a mature person. And it's, it's good to see that in my social circle of friends that I have. We're all in our now late 30s, early 40s. We're getting to that point where we're like, oh yeah, yeah, I can take responsibility for what I've done in the past. And I, I can have that sense of maturity around it. Now for some of these people, it, it still has this, this shade of not only regret, but also guilt and, and shame and all these other things that maybe aren't quite useful. But it is good to see how maturity is coming up within us. Because when we talk about Buddhism as a, as a path of practice, as a way of life, we're also talking about maturity. In the Thai tradition, the forest tradition in particular, they, they view someone who's making progress in the path essentially as growing up. This is you becoming a mature adult practicing this path. That's the idea. And it's something really helpful to think of that way. It's like, you know, everything that I'm learning, this is what it means to be a skillful person in the world. And I see my friends, regardless of what spiritual path they're on, they're becoming mature in their own ways. They're becoming responsible in their own ways. And there's still some baggage around that here and there. I have my baggage too, but that's, that's kind of how it's happening. There's, there's a sense of maturity there. I will say, though, that in Buddhism, because we have this much larger scope of the path, which doesn't just include this life, but previous lives without any discern discernible beginning, future lives that have yet to come, we, we have this different sense of maturity that's not based in age, because the age of our actions, we can't rightly say. Our actions go beyond this life. So maturity really comes down to our, our sense of wisdom. A good example of this is the story of uh, Venerable uh, Ratapala, who was a monk who was very young when he ordained. And that was notable at the time because in some of the stories, a lot of these monks, they were kind of middle-aged when they decided to ordain. So when someone was really young, had a promising future ahead of them, you know, they were good looking and had, like, they, had their, they had parents that were just going to provide for them. They had an easy life and then decide to ordain anyway. That really stands out. And in the story of Ratapala, what's really interesting about him is that he is this young monk who has that story behind him that everyone knows, and he's giving advice to a much older person, an older man who's now in his kind of golden years, a king though, or at least a chieftain, someone of, of, of high note. And Ratapala is in the position to give lessons to this much older man. And so when we're talking about the maturity that exists in these two people, it's not to say that the, the king is not mature or wise or responsible, but in the sense of practicing the Dhamma, in terms of coming to any sense of realization or awakening, Ratapala, despite his age, is someone of a greater maturity, or at least maturity in terms of the path, in terms of the Dhamma. So when we're talking about maturity in this way, in the path, we're talking about something that in itself is not based in age. And not even directly 
based in, in just the amount of life experience, but the lessons that one can derive from their life experiences. And by looking at the examples of others. Ratapala was someone who was very observant, which is something that the, the Buddha really valued in his students. He wanted his students to be observant. What that means is when they look at, at actions, they're not only looking at their own actions and the consequences of those actions, they're also looking at the people around them. They're looking at their parents, their brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, friends, acquaintances, people out in the world, and they're drawing lessons from the experience. And those lessons contribute to their wisdom. And so that's the kind of maturity that someone like Rathapala has. And so this maturity really takes on, I would say, at least for, the, for this discussion, two important qualities. One I've already touched upon, which is this sense of responsibility. For a Buddhist, I would say the other side of this coin that's very important for those, us, those of us practicing the path is friendship. Friendship in the Buddhist sense of admirable friendship becomes this important aspect of responsibility. Because without the friendship, responsibility on its own doesn't necessarily need to go this way, but it can go this way towards what I was sh saying about shame, regret, and guilt, and uh, perhaps anxiety and preoccupation about our actions in a way that it becomes unbalanced, becomes precarious, becomes dangerous. It can lead us not only into unskillful action, it might end up leading us into non-action. And so what we want to do is make sure that we're responsible in a good way, in a skillful way, where really what we are is just taking ownership of our actions, realizing that in this life, in this path that we're on, we have choices, especially right here in the present moment, we have choices that we can make, and owning that, learning from the choices that we've made in the past, recognizing that we're making choices now, and really reflecting on the choices we'll make in the future. This path that we're on is a path of action. And actions are based in intentions, which is why I talk about choice. Friendliness becomes important because we need to be a friend to ourselves when we're observing our actions. A lot of the friends I was telling you about, and I'm, I use friends in a loose way. Some of these are close companions. Some of these are acquaintances. Some of these are people that I tend to meet on the street. I tend to refer to everyone as a friend. But these are all stories that I've heard. And in a lot of these stories, these people have gotten to the point where they are taking responsibility for the choices that they've made, but they tend to be bogged down and weighed down by the choices. These are people who can sometimes be very sad about their pasts, and even sad about their presence, because even though they have recognized that they were maybe unskillful in their past, they still have that residue even now. They still feel unskillful, even though they have the insight now to recognize Ah, but I, I do have this responsibility in my choice. What they lack at this point is really trust in themselves and in their actions. That trust is also extremely important. I, I was talking to someone recently who had shared um, kind of broadly that, that she's on uh, a spiritual path and feeling a bit like it, it isn't really going anywhere you know the way she put it is that for every two step steps forward it feels like she's taking a step back and it feels like every time she's learned a lesson there's an old lesson that she thought she learned that came back in some way and it felt like she's starting all over on that particular issue and um, you know I shared with her um, you know I, I, I have to admit that 
that pretty much epitomizes my, my entire youth. I felt exactly the same way. And she asked, okay, well, and now? And so I, I told her that, well, I will say this. I do look back at the mistakes that I made when I was younger, uh, and I am forgiving. Forgiving for, you know, towards myself, forgiving towards the other people involved, and that forgiveness is important, that, that sense of, of goodwill and compassion I have for myself and other people. But what I've also learned in being the kind of person that practices all, you know, when I was younger at least, all sorts of spirituality, is that of all the different things I was practicing, there was one path that stood out as something that made me feel empowered, made me feel like I could actually do something with my choices, that I wasn't uh, merely at the, the whims of the universe, but I am an active agent in my life in shaping my karma. And that's Buddhism. That it shows us that if we're gonna make any progress, spiritually, mentally, physically, it's something that's, that's done right here and right now through our actions. And I, I especially love that about the path because it, when we really examine it, we find something empowering. Not something deterministic and fatalistic and just says you're at the whims of karma. That was not the Buddha's teachings on karma. There are teachings like that out there. That karma is just this thing that you, you're born into this world with a bank account and you, it's either in the red or in the green or the black rather and it's just that's just how it's going to go and good luck enjoy the ride you know the buddha's teachings was not that way he says yeah there's past karma but there's also present karma happening right now and this is where you have this freedom of choice to choose how you react to choose how you act and to make sure that you do so in a skillful way i took that lesson in and and tried to apply it to every aspect of my life and that doesn't mean that I do it perfectly. But what I will say is I have now gotten to a point in my life where maybe in the past I did not trust myself to be skillful. I didn't trust myself in a lot of situations. I felt uncertain. We talk about the three characteristics. Some people call them three marks of existence. I think it's probably more appropriate to call them as three perceptions. We talk about inconstancy, stress, and not self. I will say that the way I was living before, I felt like I myself was very inconstant. I myself was not just only feeling stress, but was a stressful person to be around. And whatever I was doing was not worth claiming as I, me, or mine. So those marks of existence, those three characteristics, were characteristics of me, so I felt. I can now say that I've gotten to a point where in this world that feels very inconstant, that feels rocky and shaky, because I've been focusing on, on developing sila, samadhi, panya, I know that at the very least I can trust and rely on myself. This goes back to the Buddha's teachings that he said that we practice this path and we have guides and teachers along the way primarily so that we can take the Dhamma in internally into our hearts as our refuge and we take ourselves as our refuge now self gets kind of tricky when we talk about it in buddhism but self in this case doesn't mean what am i but rather or rather do i have a self it's that if there is any self that we're going to focus on we're defined by our actions 
This is a totally silly example, but it came to me this morning. There's that movie Batman Begins. I know. Why am I talking about Batman? But there is this, this interesting phrase that comes up once about halfway through the movie and again towards the end, where Bruce Wayne has this childhood friend, Rachel, and she's seeing him in his Bruce Wayne disguise, being a womanizer and throwing his money all around. And, but it's all an act. But she comes up and she's judging him for it. Like, look at this clown, right? And he says, you know, Rachel, like, you know, like, like you know, this, this right here, like, like the, you know, this, this isn't me, though. Like, you know, right? This, is, this isn't, you know, who I am, right? And, you know, she, she looks him dead in the eye and says, you know, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not who you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. And, you know, he, he takes that right on the chin because what's he going to say to her there? But then later on in the movie, there he is in his whole Batman getup. And she's curious, this guy who just saved her life dressed up as a giant rubber bat. And she asks, who are you? This dark, mysterious man who saved me. And he turns and says it in a real guttural way that I won't uh, try to recreate here. You know, it's, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. And that's that whole moment where she looked, oh, Bruce, you know, but it's true. It, when we talk about not-self, we can say all these claims about this, this body, this mind, this heart. But the Buddha, when, when looking at that meta, metaphysical, metaphysical concern, what are you, said, throw that aside. Look at your actions. Be defined by your actions. In fact, that's, that's the, the translation of kamma. You know, people talk about it in this, in this mystical sense, but karma really comes down to action and consequence. And it's one of those things that we recite so much in Buddhism. I'm the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, related through my actions. You know, whatever I do for good or for evil, to that will I fall heir, right? That's, that's what we are. That's what we're defined by. We're defined by our actions. That's as much self as we need to develop in the path. And so in relating to my life and my actions that way, I can at least feel assured it doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. But what it means is that I now have a, a compass that's pointing me in a particular direction. I have sila, samadhi, and panya, the path itself. The, all the Eightfold Path can be condensed under those three terms. Sila being conduct or virtue. Samadhi being meditation. Panya being wisdom, insight, the things that we, we develop, the, the, the right views and right resolves that we have that help us develop the path. And I have that that keeps me on this, on this path that I'm on. Sometimes I might err to the left, sometimes I might err to the right, but I have something now that I can make me recognize I need to course correct and there I am in the middle again, making progress down the path. And so I tried to relate this to the, to the friend I was talking to. And of course, you know, there's only so many words you can convey in a normal conversation. My normal conversations with people are not a dhamma talk. But I was trying to convey this sense that, well, while I'm, I'm not perfect, and I have not achieved the goal, I've not achieved the deathless, I'm at least in a stage in my life where I trust myself. I trust myself, and that's huge. And so I try to practice with a sense of maturity in the sense of having responsibility for my actions, but also having a friendliness in the way I am in the world and the way I am towards myself. Trying to be a friend to everyone, because that's the other side of skillfulness. 
The Buddha says it's not enough to just be a friend to yourself or just be a friend to your loved ones, but to be a friend to the world in the sense that you measure your conduct by how harmless, how blameless it is, not just for yourself, but with every single person you interact with. That you act in, in, your, in your life with the true, honest intention, determination. May all beings look after themselves with ease. May all beings, at some point, have these same feelings manifest into some true actions in their lives. May we all seek to be skillful. May we all seek to protect each other in this way. The Buddha talked about the Dhamma as the highest protection. Practicing the Dhamma is the highest blessing. And this is how, this is why. Because we become a friend to each other. To bring in another superhero, because why not? It's one of those days, I'll bring in Superman. Who, in the comics and in the movies, oftentimes, before he's given the moniker Superman, when people ask, who are you, strange man that just saved us? He says, a friend. And I find that a beautiful lesson, you know, the idea to just be a friend to everyone. So those are the two sides of maturity, I think, responsibility and friendship. And that sense, that unlimited sense of friendship, where we don't set limitations on who we consider friend, where we consider all sentient beings friend. There is another aspect that I'd like to talk about as well, which is how is it that we, we measure our conduct in the first place? How is it that we, we make sure our actions are skillful? You know, I talked about sila, virtue, conduct. You know, that's covered by, by the precepts, and we can go over the list of them we have many times at this temple. But, you know, that's, that's just the, the sort of outer casing for a process that's very internal, that it requires investigation, that requires looking at in a very particular way. So I'll talk about mindfulness. And this is something that when we talk about mindfulness, we tend to only look at it as a meditative quality, right? When we talk about sila, samadhi, and panya, we're talking about samadhi, we're talking about right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And mindfulness is sort of sandwiched in there is very important, perhaps su supremely important in certain circles of Buddhism, but most definitely like it is a, a meditation thing and not something that we can apply to all aspects of our lives. But that's not how the Buddha talked about mindfulness. He said the other aspects, you know, effort, concentration, are distinctly meditative and so useful when one is meditating. But mindfulness, he said, was something that's useful all the time. And it's because of what mindfulness is. When the Buddha, when the Buddha talked about mindfulness, he very rarely just talked about mindfulness on its own. He tended to talk about mindfulness in terms of three qualities, mindfulness being one of them. He talked about ardency, he talked about alertness, and then he talked about mindfulness. So when we apply this to meditation, mindfulness is very clear. When we're doing mindfulness of breathing, what does it mean to be mindful of the breath? It means pay attention to the breath. Think about the breath. Let the breath become your focus as you meditate. Being alert means that you're evaluating the breath looking at it, investigating it, looking into different qualities of the breath, seeing what's happening with the, the mind and the body and the heart and the breath together as one fathom-long experience as you sit down in meditation, that's being alert. Then ardency is this kind of get-up-and-go-ness, this, this ability to, to recognize when you've stopped following the breath and go back to the breath. And no matter how many times you, you seem to mess up, get caught up in some fantasy, you start thinking about lunch, you're like, mm, nachos today maybe. That's all part of it too. You, you, you go course correct, back, back, back to the breath, back to the breath. 
And that's being ardent. That's really having this sense of, okay, I'm going to pick myself back up and go again and again and again. And you can have an awful meditation where you've had to use ardency 12 to 20 to 30 to 100 times. You keep forgetting the breath, coming back to the breath. You keep forgetting the breath and coming back to the breath. That's what it means to be ardent. Now, those very qualities we train in meditation, but then we can apply them to our lives, apply them to our actions. We can be mindful of our actions, which means to be mindful of the Dhamma, everything we know about sila, samadhi, and panya, and look at what we do out in the world as we're talking to friends, as we're talking to family, as we're interacting and making choices about, about, with our day and about our day. We can really look with uh, a recollection towards the Dhamma, thinking about our actions, and then we can be alert, really, really evaluating. In fact, the, the Pali term for alertness, Sampajanya, is sometimes translated as um, not discernment, it's something else that starts with a D, uh, discrimination, which kind of, today we think of discrimination in a very negative way, but to be dis discriminatory really means to like look and make value judgments about what's happening. So in terms of your actions, we're also being discriminating, which means to be kind of judicious, maybe is a better term, just looking around and seeing, doing the, the work that the Buddha said of evaluating things in terms of their skillfulness. But then there's this other quality that I think is the really important part that gets back to that maturity I was talking about, that sense of responsibility and that sense of friendship, which is to be ardent in how we practice the path. Because we are going to make mistakes. There are going to be problems that come up in life. We're going to feel discouraged. We're going to feel like we can't keep going. I've known people who have started a spiritual path and abandoned it or given up or feel time and time again as if they're beating their head against the wall. We can apply that same quality of ardency to our path itself, not just meditation, not just mindfulness of breathing or whatever other uh, meditative practice we're doing. We can, we can practice ardency in the very choices that we make, which is to recognize that we, we don't want to spend our time mulling over our mistakes and blaming ourselves. We're not going to look over our various interactions and dwell on them over and over again, but rather have that sense of, I'm going to pick myself up and keep going. There's one period in my life that I think illustrates that well, and so I'll, I'll share that with you. I was in middle school, and I decided I was going to start playing football. I was very bad at football. You look at me, you see this big guy here, and you think, well, probably very good at football. Nope, not really. Very bad at football. And when I was in middle school, you know, they knew we were a bunch of growing kids, so we were not playing tackle football. We were playing touch football. And I remember that our coach would like would, would have us practice these various plays and we would, we would get kind of good at them and then we'd go actually play a game and I know what I would do which is I'd line up and I was one of the linemen and I would do the first part of the play and then I would stop because I think okay my job is done and I would literally stand in the middle of the field and start looking around watching what everything else what everyone else was up to and the coach would be like Steven what are you doing keep playing and I'm like but I did the play am I supposed to do more like what am I doing and this coach was just flabbergasted. Over time, I recognized, oh, no, you got to keep going. There's, there's more to do. The play is just, this is what we're going to do on paper. And then once you're out there, it may be a little different. You have to keep moving. You have to keep doing something. Towards the end of that season that we were playing in, in middle school, I remember that there was one team we were playing against that had the linemen that I was kind of up against. I was protecting our quarterback from this guy. And the rest of us, like I said, were playing touch football. 
Uh, this guy was not playing touch football. He was playing tackle football. I like to imagine in my head that his father was just waiting for the day this guy could finally play football, and here it was. And so now he was going to play football the way his father had taught him, which was very dangerous. And I remember this guy charging right at me and knocking me back so hard, I did uh, a back roll. And I popped up, and I thought, whoa, crazy. And I went right back into it, and he knocked me over again. And I got up again, and he knocked me over again, and I got up again. And it was the only time that in my memory I can remember the coach just like, yes, Steven, yes, yeah. He was cheering me on like, yes. Like, he was just so happy to see this quality in me that no matter how many times I got knocked down, I got back up. Now, that was for one game, but it's a valuable lesson that we're going to get knocked down either by our own actions or the actions of others because we don't happen in a vacuum. None of this happens in a vacuum. So life gives whatever it gives, and sometimes we're a part of it. We're complicit in it. But what we can do is get back up and keep going, having that kind of determination, having that kind of ardency that we bring to our practice. And the ability to do that consistently throughout the course of our lives, I think also ties back to that maturity, that sense of growing up in the path, taking responsibility, being a friend to ourselves, doing it with real mindfulness, which means not just mindfulness on its own, but also with ardency and alertness. So since I, I started this with talking about age, I thought I would end by sharing one of the poems from the, the Teragata. And if you haven't read the Teragata, I would highly recommend it because the poems in there are the poems of the elders. They're elder disciples of the Buddha who achieved the goal, they achieved the deathless. They're arahants. And what they have to say about their own practice, sometimes you come across a poem and it's just so enriching and so encouraging, it can really help us. But since I was talking about age, this is from the uh, venerable monk uh, Supiya, the elder monk. I'll make a trade, aging for the ageless burning for the unbound, the highest peace, the unexcelled rest from the yoke. So I'll end my talk there. <laughs>